This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello there, it's Evan Shinners. You may call me WTF Bach. Whatever rolls off the tongue. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to guide your ears, to set your mind on certain aspects of an intricately constructed music. Together we will break it down, dissect it, examine the construction, and you will come away with new perspective, knowing what to listen for. Bach's music has this miraculous power to be studied over and over again, and somehow the more you look at it, even the simplest aspects of it, it amazes you more than it did before. For example, let's say you've studied, you've really studied a piece, you learn it, you memorize it, or you play the recording of it a hundred times, you're satisfied with how well you know this piece. So you put it on the shelf, and you could come to it still years later and find that suddenly it has this completely new splendor. And then you wonder what it was that you've gone through since the last time you looked at that music that suddenly allows for this perspective. Because the music is the same, you've changed. I wonder if that will ever stop. Normally, I go through phases with music I love. I fall really hard for certain composers or certain bands, right? We all go through phases. But then if we listen to that music 10 years later, it usually doesn't renew its beauty. It's sort of like a time capsule. But Bach, it seems infinite. It seems like a lifetime of study and then some. But I will let you know if suddenly I wake up and the music of Bach refuses to fascinate me. And at that point, I will give all my listeners $10,000. The great French composer Charles Gounod said, If all the music since Bach's time should be lost, it could be reconstructed on the foundation which Bach laid. Hello, and welcome to the WTF Bach Podcast. OMG, what's WTF Bach going to be doing tonight? Guiding your mind through your contrapuntal journey. Do you know what contrapuntal means? I had to look it up. Alright, so as of now, this podcast is being heard in 56 different countries in the world, not including those six listeners listening in unknown countries. So hello to all of those listening in lands unknown. One matter of housekeeping before we attack this sixth contrapuntus. In the last episode, I played recordings of one Maestro Scherchen, and for some reason I called him Thomas. His name is Hermann, Hermann Scherchen, and I don't know why I called him Thomas, so Maestro, if you can, please forgive me from beyond the grave. So you're addicted to the art of fugue, obviously, and you're listening to a bunch of different recordings, and so far, unless, of course, you put on something like Hermann Scherchen, you notice that, yeah, everyone's playing more or less the same music. But then contrapuntus six comes along. And the great Hungarian pianist Zoltán Kocsis plays this. Tatyana Nikolayeva, for whom Shostakovich wrote his Preludes and Fugues, plays this. And even Helmut Walcher, my boy, the blind organist from Leipzig, plays this. Now what we're listening for is that rhythm. Da 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 da. And all three of those performers so far have played da 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 da. But then you put on some more modern recordings and you hear Ah. What's this? Did you hear that? That was in broke pitch. It's played a bit lower. He played in the left hand. Da 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 da. Okay, so that's David Moroni, harpsichordist. Let's hear French pianist Pierre Laurent Aymard. Ah, he too, with this dotted rhythm. 
So you rush to the score, you want to clarify this. What did Bach write? Did he write da da or did he write bada? Well, it looks like Bach wrote da da. End of confusion. Or is it? Because then you put on the great one, Gustav Leonhardt, and he's playing in the 1950s, like before Glenn Gould even recorded a note, Leonhardt is playing this. Whoa, okay, that's the shortest, that's the shortest rhythm of all. So you think, okay, there must be something I'm missing. This can't exactly be modern scholarship if both Valcha and Leonhardt are playing two completely different rhythms in the same decade. So what am I missing? Well, this is the first fugue to have a title besides Contrapuntus I, Contrapuntus II. This one says Contrapuntus VI in Stilo Franceses, in the French style. Well, normally, the French style refers to note inégale, unequal notes. That means that notes on a page, which read literally sound like this, are actually played like this, if you want to play it in the correct style. So in that regard, note de Enegal, the French style, is very similar to jazz, in that if you come across a transcription of a jazz solo, you may see it all written in eighth notes, but of course you don't play it as straight eighth notes, you swing. And that's what note de Negal is, it's swing. That's one of the great misunderstandings of Bach's music and Baroque music in general, is that it's computer-like, when really, there's actually a huge amount of swing going on. Now, the French style usually refers to 16th notes, so we see here that the theme has these 16th notes now. So you start swinging out, you play this. You play ba-da ba -dum, and you think, that's good, that's the French style. And then you get to bar 62, and you see a whole bunch of 16th notes. Now, if you want to keep any sort of consistency, you have to swing all the 16th notes. So you get to bar 62, and it sounds like this. Yeah, it sounds like a horse with three legs. So what we want to know is, what did Bach mean when he wrote in the French style? What exactly does the French style mean? Well, finally, you do what you should have done a long time ago. You read the preface to the score. And in the Henley edition, the editor tells you right there, the title, Stilo Francese, appears only in the print. It refers to the French overture style. It would therefore be an error to interpret the title as meaning that the 16th notes must be in Egal, and therefore in the French style. It's very unlikely that Bach intended the shortening of these notes, so he means basically don't do this. He goes on to say, Stilo Francese, French style, almost certainly refers to only shortening the eighth notes in the regular subject. So in other words, play... Play bada and not... Okay, great. Well, we might as well check another edition because, you know, this is one guy's opinion. What does someone else have to say? So we crack open the Neue Bachausgabe, the NBA, for those of us in the know. And it says this. In Contrapuntus 6, the choice of the French overture texture in Stilo Francese implies a distinct heightening and emphasis of the dotting of the basic rhythm ba bada. Here we particularly recommend treating the dotted quarter notes as double dotted quarter notes. Basically the same thing, do this. Okay, so we can pretty much explain these older recordings as not coming to this work from a historically informed perspective. The recordings made before the 1980s when this historically informed approach or the early music revival happened. So therefore you write off the people who play this. Well, yes, until, of course, you listen to the great Robert Hill, the harpsichordist from the second episode of this podcast, and you'll see he plays this.
Wow, so he played ba, ba, da, da. Okay, well, well that was in 1987. He recorded the autofugue again in 1998. Let's see if he's come to his senses. Now, he's still playing this. And there's no way that an expert such as Robert Hill is unaware that the modern trend is to play this. So why does he still play it this way? Well, this one I can't answer. So I emailed him and I hope he gets back to me soon so I can share it with you. Now, how about that editor of the Henley edition who recommended not doing this? Well, that happened to be David Maroney, who you heard earlier played this. But his teacher was Gustav Leonhardt. Now, remember when I talked about the three-legged horse sort of running that crooked race at bar 62? Well, listen to Leonhardt. Well, obviously Mr. Leonhardt isn't afraid of the three-legged horse race, but maybe it's only good when he does it. Maybe that's why other people don't do it. Well, here's his student, Maroney, years later, the same passage, unswung 16th notes. Right, isn't this fascinating? We have three experts in their field, Robert Hill, Gustav Leonhardt, David Maroney and Robert Hill also studied with Leonhardt, and they're playing it completely differently. Well, we'll get to the bottom of this, but first let's look at the construction of this fugue and not just the scholarship. Okay, so you recall from the previous episode that this fugue cell, this art of fugue theme, has been now exploded both right side up and upside down, coming at exactly the same time, two beats apart, six beats apart, four beats apart, 12 beats, even one beat apart. So how is Bach going to beat that? Well, he's demonstrated pretty much that no matter how you bring in this subject, in whatever direction, at whatever time, it works. He's got this DNA which can overlap itself or be rotated in any way, and all the results are beautiful. So you're Bach, and you're thinking, what else can I do to this little cell? Well, what you haven't done yet is bring in this subject at two different speeds. Two different speeds. Right, this is the sixth fugue here, and all of the previous five fugues have seen the theme traveling at, well, let's call it 1x speed, or 100% speed. Every single first note of each fugue has been a half note. But this fugue, too, starts with a half note, but the answer, the second voice, enters with a quarter note. Okay, wait, so how does this work? This is a technique called diminution. We see it creeping up in Bach's later works. He'll play something at one speed, and take the same thing at double speed, and he'll play them at the same time, or nearly the same time. See, that's my left hand at one speed, the right hand at double speed. Okay, so let's say our theme takes four measures to play. Well, if you're playing it twice as fast, suddenly you can play that twice as fast theme in two measures. So let's call this theme traveling twice as fast, this 2x theme, the diminished subject. Diminished means reduction. This is the reduced length theme. Well, when you think about it, that also implies that two of the diminished subjects may occur in the space of one regular subject. Now, making the connection from Fugue 5, where he went A to D in the treble, now, in Fugue 6, he's going to go D to A in the bass. 
but we're not going to play da da. We're going to play. But immediately in the very next bar, he's going to bring in the answer at 2x speed. Now, it would sound like this if the answer were not inverted. But because of this sort of parallel octave here, he brings it in inversion. So this will become this. That's the diminished subject in my right hand, and now we'll have the 1x subject in the left hand. And it's combined. Just as I said earlier, that you could have two diminished subjects within the span of one one x subject, well, let's hear how Bach does that. First, he puts the answer a little higher in the treble so that you can have room for the second diminished subject to come in between the two hands. So did you hear that? Those were the two diminished subjects sort of up high, coming one after the other. all over the space of this plodding along 1x speed down here in the bass. Now several people tuned in said that they have appreciated being able to hear these voices sort of isolated in various parts of the speaker. So right now I'm going to give you contrapuntus 6 and I'm going to put all of the 1x, the non-diminished subjects, in the left speaker and all of the diminished subjects, the 2x speed, in the right speaker and I'll sort of explain what's going on as it happens. It'll sound a little crazy. Okay, we had regular in the bass there and two diminished subjects in the two top voices. Okay, here we have the regular in the alto in your left speaker and a diminished one in your right speaker now. A small episode where nothing will happen. Then we have diminished subject in the bass going upside down. And regular in the tenor going right side up and diminished 2x speed in the soprano. Stay with me, stay with me. Here we have an interesting thing. Just a theme in the tenor alone, all by itself. And this will be answered by the alto in regular speed with the tenor in inversion and diminution. Small episode. And now tenor, 1x speed, alto, upside down, 2x speed. Quickly followed by the soprano in 1x speed going upside down and the two lower voices in diminished in opposite directions. Okay, now we will have just a version of the alto diminished, with nothing else around it, and now the bass in inversion in 1x speed. And that was interesting there, we had sort of like a truncated version in the alto. Now we have a large episode here, this is sort of the three-legged race I was telling you about. If you were to be able to hear the other voices, all that stuff would be going on right now. Okay, there we have diminished in the soprano, upside down in the alto in 1x speed, and the tenor going right side up in diminished. This is answered by tenor, 2x speed, alto, 2x speed, and the soprano, 1x speed, upside down. Okay, we are coming to the finale of the fugue here, and we will have one more soprano going upside down at 1x speed, and the tenor and the alto both going right side up in 2x speed with that bass drone there. 
And I put the final chord here just to show you that the piece is over now. Okay, now that sounded a bit crazy, I have to admit, so good for you if you stuck with me through it. But let's, he- let's actually hear this piece in full, played by someone that's not uh, a machine.
Now that's the remarkable Isolde Algrim playing the harpsichord. She was born in 1914, she was Viennese, and she has a lot of firsts attached to her name. She was apparently the first person to perform and record the entire Bach oeuvre on the harpsichord. And what's more, she was the first person to argue that the Artifugue was actually originally a harpsichord work. And this idea was taken up by her younger colleague, Gustav Leonhardt. Now, we usually think of sort of Leonhardt as the father of all harpsichordists, but indeed, this idea was one that Leonhardt got from Al Grimm. She also gave the first performance of the musical offering in the 50s with Nicholas Harnencourt. She was a friend of Richard Strauss's. She just lived a remarkable life. Now, that last section there, that section which begins after the pause, the fermata, which is, by the way, the first fermata we have mid-fugue in the entire art of fugue, which means that we have a codetta, you know, a little closing statement. That's the first time that that happens in this fugue, contrapuntus 6. This section here... Well, you see, that section... It's often cited as being unplayable on the keyboard. It's people who are looking for proof that the art of fugue was not written for a specific instrument, and they go to this specific passage and say, ah, you see, you can't play it there on two hands. But the problem is that many of these people who are saying that you can't play it there on two hands are trying to play it on the piano, when actually the harpsichord keys are just a little smaller than piano keys. And so I, who have large hands, can actually play this passage on the piano, but I could understand how someone who doesn't have quite as big hands tries to play this on the piano and they think, see, there's no way that this was written for a harpsichord. But I'll go through it slowly here and I'll just play all the notes just so you could see that in fact it is possible. Okay, here we go. The left hand has to hold this D for a very long time. Now here's the first tenth in my right hand, followed by a second tenth in the left hand. Now you can see here I've got a lot of notes here. I've got five notes. I've got this D, this C, and that F sharp there all in my left hand. That's a pretty large hand, but not so large on the harpsichord. Followed by another tenth in the right hand. The D is restruck, sort of to prove that in fact it is written for the harpsichord. It re-resonates that D. ninth here, a D, G, E, ninth in the left hand, and then these final chords, which that D is not restruck at the end there, sorry, that should have been. There you have it, seven notes at the end of that one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The point is I'm not playing any pedal there, I'm not using any pedal to sustain any of the notes, but you know, technically on the modern piano you could smack down that middle pedal and just sustain it with this D, and then play the rest of the passage uh, unfettered. Now there is a lot more, a lot more to say about this fugue, especially regarding the revision, you see, because what happened was Bach sent this fugue to the publisher, the publisher started making the engravings in copper, and then Bach continued to work on this later, even while it was being put into the copper. And so there are all these revisions which come up from the manuscript, which is talked about in the research of that guy Gregory Butler I was telling you about. So. Gregory Butler, where are you? Come on my show. Come on, man. It's hard to get in touch with you. I don't even know if you're alive. But I think we have to save that revision for another episode. But there is one last thing I wanted to mention, which was when I played the two different speeds of the theme going in different parts of your speaker, I wonder if those among you realize that, in fact, I was swinging those 16th notes. And that's because I isolated those voices 
in fact, from a version of this fugue that I made years ago before I had really studied it in depth and realized what Bach meant when he said in the French style, my solution was I'd go between the two lines. I would sort of swing the 16th notes that did not involve the theme, but at that three-legged horse section, I would keep them straight. And so I came up with this version, which is, I don't really think it's quite an authentic version when compared to Hill, Maroney, and Leonhardt, but of course it still works, and so I'd like to just share that version with you now. This is a version on an electric harpsichord recorded a couple years ago by me. So please enjoy this, and stick around for the next episode, which will be the seventh contrapuntist, which is a personal favorite of mine. Bach is not only going to bring in the theme at 1x speed and 2x speed, he's going to bring it in at 0.5x speed. And finally, a few people have been asking if I have Patreon for this podcast. I do have a Patreon for this podcast and the Bach store. It is patreon.com slash WTFBach. Follow me on Instagram, also at WTFBach. If you are not, you are missing out on the fact that I am Instagramming the entire Well-Tempered Clavier book two on a daily or semi-daily basis. So check that out, and thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you.
hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of cloth analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. You can support Evan at patreon.com slash WTF Find the links in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you for listening.